effect that it used to, my sermons are available on our website. Now, the problem with that, of course, is that when the state comes out in two years, you'd be guilty of torture. But feel free to to use that as you see fit. Now, last week, we started a new sermon series reading about the rise of King David, the second king of Israel. Samuel was called to serve as a prophet of God, speaking to God on behalf of the people and speaking to the people on behalf of God. And after Samuel's sons do a poor job of leading God's people, Israel asks not for a judge, not for another prophet, but they ask for a king. Now, Samuel had warned them of the dangers of kings, but the people persisted. The king that God chooses, Saul, vindicates Samuel's concerns. Saul is a disobedient, unwise, and arrogant king. Thus, God calls David. And David's rise truly begins when he defeats the giant Goliath and saves God's people. Understandably, as David's fame grows, Saul begins to feel threatened by him. Saul becomes bitter and paranoid and power-hungry. He eventually abandons God entirely and even tries to kill David. But through all this hardship, David maintains his trust in God. He leaves his fate in God's hands. And as we ended last week, God came through. David becomes king. The people unite behind him. And it seems as though all is finally right in Israel. But today we pick up where we left off. If last week was the rise of King David, then today is the peak of David's reign. The tumultuous era of Saul mercifully comes to an end. And so David looks to be a source of security and stability for Israel. But even while David seems to be on top of the world, we see the same truth that we discussed last week. That there is something, or better, someone, far greater than David who is coming. There is another king for the future of God's people, and that king's name is not David. So open up to 2 Samuel chapter 1. Feel free to use the Bibles that we provide if you didn't bring one, and take a Bible home with you if you don't own one. But before we go any further, let's pray together as a church family. Father, thank you for this morning that we have to gather together. Thank you that... We can do the things that we do every week, the things that we might take for granted. Praying in public and singing in public and reading your word in public. Father, I pray that we would not take those things for granted, that we would understand how blessed we are to have those privileges and to live in a place where those rights are protected. And I pray that you would keep those rights protected. And Father, I pray that you'd be with Pinehaven. Thank you for the ministry there and the partnership that we have with them. I pray that you would continue to give their ministry good fruit uh, that benefit the children who live there, benefit the people who work there, but ultimately give you glory. And Father, be with us as we read your word. Thank you for King David, but thank you more for the king who came after David, who is the reason that we're here. We love you. We ask this all in Christ, our king's name. Amen. Well, as we go from the rise of David to the peak of his reign, we move from 1 Samuel to 2 Samuel. But one thing we notice in 2 Samuel 
is that some of the things we read here are in First Chronicles as well. So, for example, in the book of First Chronicles, we see a couple summarizing statements of David's reign. First Chronicles chapter 11, verse 9, David became greater and greater, for the Lord of hosts was with him. Last week, we mentioned that the biggest difference between David and Saul throughout their conflict was that David had the spirit of God and Saul did not. God was with David and he was not with Saul. Thus, it's no surprise that David won out in the end. We see first Chronicles 18 verse 14. David reigned over all Israel and he administered justice and equity to all his people. David is everything that Saul wasn't. He's the good king that Israel has longed for and has finally arrived. But in 2 Samuel, we see other examples of David's success and David's godliness. In chapter 1, instead of boasting or celebrating when he learns of Saul's death, David mourns. Even after all the wrong, all the evil Saul committed against David... David still has great reverence and respect for the man that God once called to be king. In chapters 2 through 4 of 2 Samuel, David slowly but surely overcomes one of Saul's remaining sons. That opposition ends up being just a minor bump in the road at the outset of David's reign. In chapter 5, David takes the city of Jerusalem once and for all. He makes it the capital of the entire kingdom of Israel. In chapter 6, David emphasizes proper worship throughout the kingdom of Israel, making the Ark of the Covenant once again front and center. That's when David famously or infamously, depending on how you look at it, makes a public fool of himself. He dances in the street, overwhelmed with praise and worship for God. And in chapters 8 through 10, David defeats More and more and more surrounding enemies. The people that Israel should have defeated long ago. The nations that had long been a thorn in Israel's side. And in chapters 8 through 10, David proves himself to be a merciful, benevolent king. He cares for the crippled son of Jonathan, the grandson of Saul. Now, last week we talked about the classic Old Testament markers of what makes for a good king. We looked in the book of Proverbs and saw traits like wisdom and discernment highlighted. Traits like a love for the truth and a desire to speak words of righteousness. We saw that a good king shows restraint and mercy and pursues justice for even the lowest of the low. Well, in 2 Samuel 1 through 10, David meets every qualification. So far, David has been the truly ideal king. But that's not even the best part of the peak of David's reign. The true high point of King David's entire life comes in 2 Samuel chapter 7. We start by reading chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. Now, when the king lived in his house... And the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. The king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. The kingdom is secure, his enemies are defeated, 
the people are united. So David sets his mind on other projects. He decides he wants to build a permanent temple for God's presence. For all this time, worship has still been happening in the tabernacle, the portable tent created way back in the time of Moses. Well, the prophet Nathan endorses David's idea initially. He says, go ahead with it. Sounds good. But then God changes their plans. We see that starting in verse four. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I haven't lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? In other words, God hasn't been concerned about a permanent temple up to this point. Verse 8. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Instead of David blessing God with a house or a temple, the reverse happens. God says that he will bless David with a house. God reminds David of his calling, where he came from. He reminds him that he has given David everything he sees. If not for God's kindness and grace, David would still be feeding sheep. He'd still be delivering sandwiches to his brothers. But even after everything that David has been given, God's not done at giving yet. God says that he will give the line of David a permanent place on the throne. David's family will always be royalty. And isn't that what every king wants more than anything else? Now, how does one possibly respond to a promise like this? What can David possibly say? Well, David's response gives us more evidence of just how good a king he really is. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 18, David says, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? 
David expresses this profound humility, this recognition that he is nothing compared to the God who called him. In 2 Samuel 7, verse 22, David says, Therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you. There is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. David worships a consistent theme throughout his life, even when he was sitting in caves on the run from Saul. In 2 Samuel 7, 28 and 29, David says, Now, O Lord God, you are God. And your words are true. And you have promised this good thing to your servant, that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken. And with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. David's not only humble, he's not only worshipful, but he's also confident. He's confident in God's ability, confident in God's faithfulness to do the things he says that he will do. So you put it all together, and it's safe to say that life is pretty good right now for David. He has unmatched power, unimaginable wealth, and a sterling reputation. He's beloved by his people, beloved by God. He has no shortage of wives, no shortage of children. Now, what can God possibly give the king who has literally everything? Well, he gives him the promise of 2 Samuel 7. And that being said, ultimately, this promise in 2 Samuel 7 isn't fulfilled in the way that David may have expected. When David heard God promise that one of his offspring would always be on the throne, David likely didn't imagine that not long after his death, the kingdom would be split in two. When David heard that promise, he likely didn't imagine that in just a few generations, the temple built by his son Solomon would be burned to the ground. He likely didn't imagine that Judah would be taken away captive to Babylon. The promise doesn't get fulfilled in the way that David may have pictured. But thankfully for David, and thankfully for you and me, The promise of 2 Samuel 7 is much bigger than even David realized. Because ultimately, the promise of 2 Samuel 7 is fulfilled by Christ himself. Our Lord, our Savior, the offspring of David. The fact that this promise is fulfilled in such an unexpected way is proof that God always keeps his word even if he doesn't keep it in the manner that we want him to. But the good news is that God keeps his word in the way that he knows best, and he knows far better than we do. The fulfillment of this promise in 2 Samuel 7 isn't just good news for David or David's descendants or the people of Israel. The promise of 2 Samuel 7 is good news for us. It's good news for all who repent of their sin, all who trust in Christ, the king who came long after David. And the reward that we get from Christ, from his life and his death and his resurrection, is far better than earthly power or wealth or prestige. Because of the promise of 2 Samuel 7, because of Christ, We get reconciliation with God, and we get the joy of worshiping him forever. 
It's a wonderful promise that David receives in 2 Samuel 7. He's on top of the world when he gets this message from God. But the promise is even better than David realized. Now, we learned a few things last week from the rise of David. But what do we learn from the peak of his reign? Well, as we mentioned, David is not the true hero of the story. And we'll see that even more clearly next week. However, we can still learn something from looking at David's life in 2 Samuel 1 through 10. Looking at his humility and his worship and his confidence in God. The good news is that so far, worldly power and prestige and success have not changed David the way they changed Saul. Up to this point, David is still the same godly, faithful man that God had called years earlier. I pray the same would be true of us. That we wouldn't let success deceive us into thinking that we are no longer utterly dependent on God for all good things. And I love the fact that even though David's reputation has grown so immensely in these chapters, David is still concerned with God's reputation above all else. I mean, let's be honest. Kings and queens and even common old sinners like us are often tempted to worship ourselves. And we're often tempted to demand others do the same. But so far, that's not David. David cares less about self-promotion and more about God promotion. His confidence is in God, not in himself. Again, may the same be true of us. And may we learn to avoid those leaders of God's people who elevate themselves more than they elevate God. And then finally, one more lesson. As a general rule, God's people flourish under godly leaders. If you go back to Proverbs, so much teaching on kings. In Proverbs 28 and 29, we read things like this. Chapter 28, verse 2. When a land transgresses, it has many rulers. But with a man of understanding and knowledge, its stability will long continue. You read that verse and you wonder, well, which comes first? A land sins and that leads to many rulers? Or many rulers lead a land to sin? Well, both things can be true. Proverbs 28, verse 12. When the righteous triumph, there is great glory. But when the wicked rise... People hide themselves. God's people benefit from righteous leaders, righteous rulers. Proverbs 29, verse 4. By justice, a king builds up the land, but he who exacts gifts, a.k.a. takes bribes, tears it down. The point is that when their leaders are corrupt and wicked, God's people suffer. And even worse than suffering, When their leaders are corrupt and wicked, God's people tend to follow in the same sinful paths themselves. This principle should be humbling and convicting for people like me and the rest of our staff and our elders. People out there who consider themselves leaders of Prairie View Christian Church or leaders of other groups of God's people. 
It should be humbling and convicting for us to remember that ultimately the best thing we can do for this church, the best thing we can do for God's people is simply be godly. It's not about our ideas. It's not about our innovation. It's not about our gimmicks. The thing God's people need are godly leaders. And I ask that you pray for the leaders of Prairie View that we would fulfill that calling. Now, we mentioned last week that for a while, Saul was on the throne, even though he was king in name only. He wasn't the true king. And even though David is called by God, and even though so far he's been the ideal king, the same thing is somewhat true with him. Because even with all his success, there's a king who is much higher than David. We see an example of that in Proverbs 29, verse 26. Many seek the face of a ruler, but it is from the Lord that a man gets justice. That verse is a subtle reminder that even under the best kings and the best leaders, God is still our true king and our true leader. Now, you may have noticed in this sermon series, we've been using this image of a crown. This gold crown that appears to be pretty solid. That is until you see a crack in that crown. Next week, we see David get that crack in his crown. Because next week is when the seemingly perfect king will fall in spectacular public fashion. And the story will remind us yet again that our one true perfect king doesn't wear a golden, cracked crown. Our one true king subjected himself to a crown of thorns. And that's why we can worship with joy. That's why we look forward to eternity with God. The king who was truly alluded to in 2 Samuel 7 wasn't David, wasn't Solomon, wasn't any other earthly ruler. It ultimately points to Christ. And because of Christ, sinners like you and me, rebels, enemies of God, orphans, we can become like kings and queens. We can become like sons and daughters in the royal family of God. And we can worship Christ, our king, forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you use David in so many ways, that in these chapters that we read, we see so many wonderful examples of humility and trust and confidence in you, examples of worship. But Father, I also pray that as we read these chapters in Second Samuel, that our eyes would be pointed ahead much further down the road. That when David is long gone, another king, another lord will arise far better and far greater than him. And it's that king that we have the privilege of worshiping this morning. So, Father, thank you for your son, our lord, our savior, our master. We give you all the glory. We give him all the glory. We thank you for your spirit and your church and are so grateful for the gift of your word. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.